the world was falling apart. Fascist Nazi shock troops of the Third Reich and their Blitzkrieg had spread across Europe and Northern Africa and were marching their eastern front deep into the heart of Russia. The Empire of Japan was making its conquest of the Pacific reality. 65 million human lives would be lost. 11 million would eventually be systematically exterminated by an evil war machine like the world had never seen before. To gain a foothold into Europe and take on the armies of Hitler's Nazi Third Reich, the world needed a new elite type of soldier. The paratrooper was that soldier. Changing Hearts and Minds welcomes you to a special series dedicated to the greatest generation, and specifically, the well-known story that inspired the best-selling book and HBO miniseries, Band of Brothers. Join me, Jeff Adamick, veteran of the U.S. Army, where I served as a paratrooper in the 82nd, Ranger in the 2nd Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment, and finally as a Green Beret in 3rd Special Forces Group, as I welcome fellow veterans, other podcast hosts and personalities, and some very special guests to honor the true story, book, and television series about the greatest generation's most honored story of sacrifice, service, and leadership in the face of overwhelming evil. Lessons in Leadership, the men and history of Easy Company. Hey there, everybody. Hey, first, I want to thank everyone for coming on this journey with me over the last, I'm God knows, four or five months. It's been uh, quite a long time for me doing all this stuff. And I want to tell you guys that I really do appreciate every single one of you who stuck around from the very first episode to the very last episode. Uh, really was a, uh, a journey in a, and, a, and a labor of love to get this thing done. And I really do want to thank especially not just the actors, the writers, producers, and everyone that made the show, Band of Brothers, but also and especially the actual men of Easy Company. There is no, uh, there's no replacing these guys as far as being uh, heroes and mentors and role models to look up to, especially for our younger generations to find people who can really dig down and find what they need to do to get the work done. Just like I promised you guys over the entire last 10 episodes, I here have the unabridged, unedited, and unsolicited full interview of Mr. Dale Dye and myself, which you are going to hear right now. And I just want to tell you guys that I really thank you guys for coming along again, and I hope you guys stick around and check out all the new episodes of Changing Hearts and Minds that'll come out uh, right after all this stuff is done. So uh, with no more waiting, here you guys are, the uh, complete and totally unedited Dale Dye and Jeff Adamick. Thanks, guys. Today's guest... Real big deal for us here on uh, uh, Changing Hearts and Minds and the Changer POV Network. Uh, if you don't know his name, again, you're going to learn about it, and I will give you crap about not knowing who this guy is, but our guest today is Dale Dye. Dale Dye is from Missouri, and he enlisted in the U.S. Marine Corps in 1964. His unit was one of the very first to deploy to Vietnam in 1965. He saw quite a bit of combat action during his tours in Vietnam, but he also rose from an enlisted Marine to an NCO to a warrant officer and eventually was commissioned as an officer. He would serve as a captain in the Marines before retiring in 1984. Once he got out, guys, he started Warriors, Inc., which is a company that I'm going to actually read you guys directly from the website what Warriors, Inc. was about. Captain Dale Dye came to Hollywood with a vision. He had a single mission in mind to change how American civilians viewed the common grunt. Having been around infantrymen all his life and having been one himself, he knew that the majority are intelligent, creative, and full of heart, and that the image of the dumb cannon fodder blindly following orders not only was not true, 
but it was a grave disservice to those brave servicemen who had risked and often gave their lives so that our nation could survive and prosper. He, guys, today, Dale Dye is one of the most recognizable names and faces in film and television. When it comes to accurate and inspiring combat and military stories, he's the guy that we always think of. He's a favorite to all veterans who always can spot his influence on the projects he's a part of. From Platoon to Saving Private Ryan and TV shows Band of Brothers in the Pacific, each of which is commonly known to be a favorite among veterans for its realism and ability to capture the heart and culture of grunts in combat. Dale Dye served in the Vietnam War and the Lebanese Civil War and has been awarded the Bronze Star Medal with V-Device for Valor, three Purple Hearts, two Navy and Marine Corps Commendation Medals with V-Device, Navy and Marine Corps Achievement Medal with V-Device, Notorious Service Medal, and the Joint Service Commendation Medal. Welcome to the show, Mr. Dale Dye. Well, thank you, Jeff. I, I don't know what, whether to go to sleep or stand up and salute here. Thank you, <laughs> thank you very much for that introduction. That's great. I appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, yes, sir. No, well, thank, thank you. First of all, thank you for your service and for, honest to God, for being, being a guy that actually went to Hollywood. And in, in my opinion, and a lot of opinions of, of guys like me, changed the way that, mil, that film and television made combat stories to actually be consumable by the actual veterans who had seen combat. So uh, we're, we're just, we're just very happy to have you on. And, uh, well, that, that whole, that whole thing, Jeff was, was entirely the mission. I mean, I had no idea, frankly, um, how hard it was going to be or what kind of resistance I was going to uh, encounter, but that was the agenda. And it, it was the agenda when I started. Um, and it, it remains the agenda today. I just think, that Hollywood needs to recognize and do better by uh, those of us who've, uh, who've worn the uniform and borne the burden of, uh, of war. Um, and, and as I can get that done, I'm, I'm delighted. Uh, I can't always get it done, but I'm, I'm batting pretty good um, with things like Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan and, and some of the ones you mentioned. So I'm uh, I'm delighted to be with you, and you can ask me anything, and I'll try to answer for you. Oh yeah, well, first of all, when you say that you try to get it done, believe me that in uh, in most of our eyes, you're not only getting it done, but you're getting it done with zeal and uh, and doing it right. Because uh, as I it. said, you are you are very rec- your 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 influence on films is pretty much recognizable across the board. So so. Having said that, let's uh, let's get into some of the questions we got for you guys. So, so as you know, we're doing a, a it's going to be a ten part series on Band of Brothers. It's going to be a special series that's released all at one time for Changing Hearts and Minds. And we wanted to get some guys uh, that were actually part of the production to come in. And for us, you are you are a great uh, a great addition to that to that group of people. And you're going to hear when you actually do hear the series, you're going to hear a lot of different veterans who are going to pay homage to the work that you guys did on Band of Brothers. Not just to the guys that actually performed the actions that Band of Brothers is based on, but making it pretty much one of the most pivotal, pivotal shows in, in film history and movie history, in my opinion, that really captures, captures the essence of what happened uh, during those times. So having said that, can you talk to us about your method of preparing the cast for playing the soldiers uh, through Warriors, Inc. and what you guys do? Sure. Um, look, a long time ago, um, you know, I had I had watched every I think every military movie there ever was, Jeff. And and uh, it, they were always missing something from the simplest, stupid mistakes like carrying, you know, an M-16 rifle in a World War Two movie um, to more complicated things like like how we talk to each other and how we relate to each other. 
And I, I, I kept seeing the, the, um, you know, the, the title in the credits, technical advisor, and it'd be some retired guy. And, and, and I said, well, you know, how in the hell did he let stuff like that get by? What's going on? So I, I came to Hollywood to, to try to figure out what the gap was. And I very quickly found out that um, the, the Hollywood establishment, and, you know, very, very few of them ever wore a uniform or, for that matter, knew anybody who ever wore a uniform. And so uh, they didn't consider things about our heart and our mind, who we were, as important parts of the dramatic storytelling process. They just wanted to know, you know, is this uniform right? And now get away and go over there and sit down and go to sleep and we'll wake you up. And we want to know which side the ribbons go on. <laughs> right, right. Um, so I said, well, you know, no wonder. No wonder. So I began to, I, I said, this has to be fixed. And, and as I moved along, I began to meet a few actors, people who, who really were into the process and who were creative, artistic type of people. And I said, how can you, how can you guys screw it up so bad? <laughs> and they said, they said, what do you mean? Uh, we, had a, we had a guy told us how to carry the weapon and how to wear our gear. And I said, yeah, but that's not it. What you're missing is the heart and soul of a soldier of who we are, how we relate to each other, how we talk, how we carry ourselves, uh, how we think, what our passions are, uh, how we rely on the guy to our right and our left. And, and we must have faith that he's relying on us. We're relying on him and, and he won't let us down. Um, and, and they, they just looked at me, you know, with a kind of a blank expression, like, huh? Um, and I said, no, 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 that's really the essence. That's the soul of it. And so I began to think it over and I said, well, look, how can I fix this? Assuming I ever get a chance, which I finally did in Platoon, how can I fix this? And the answer was very simple. And every GI, every soldier, every Marine, every sailor, every airman, every Coast Guardsman will recognize the answer immediately. And that's training. But you have to do this training in extremis. They're not going to give me six, eight, ten weeks to train these guys as uh, as we would do on an entry level in one of the services. Right. I've I've got to find a way to take five or six days or two weeks or one week or whatever they'll give me, and I have to teach these guys how we think, how we act, how we relate to each other. And and so what occurred to me was, look, if, if I'm forced to do that in that brief period of time, then I've got to cut away all of the crapola. I've got to put these guys in extremis. I've got to make them experience some of the things that we experience. Things like utter exhaustion. Um, things like no sleep. Things like having to protect the next guy while he sleeps. Um, things about what's, what it's really like to carry heavy weight and hump hills. Uh, you know, I've ha I had enough of this business of, you know, having styrofoam in the pack. That's right. not going to work with me. I don't play that game. <laughs> so I developed this, what, what people call the, the captain die method, which is I'm going to take your dumb ass and I'm going to wear you out. I'm going to PT you or whatever else I can do until you're, dragon. I'm going to smoke you. And then I probably have your attention. At that point, you're probably thinking, 
all I really need to do is not piss off that old white haired guy. <laughs> and if I can, if I can just do that, I'll get through this. What they didn't understand and what I understood from my own personal experience was once I've got them at that point, they're dry sponges. I can now teach and I can not only teach academically, but I can teach psychologically. I can teach emotionally because now they will understand it. They will understand how we live and the hardships with up with which we have to put. And so what what happened is there was this Captain Die method that developed. And it began with uh, Platoon in which they gave me uh, 33 actors and I took them into the the jungles of the Philippines, the mountains of the Philippines up above Luzon uh, on the north um, or yeah, northwest uh, portion of Luzon up in the jungle mountains. And, and I made them live as we lived in Vietnam for three weeks. And of course, you know, that, that show won um, four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. And I was fortunate enough to be recognized as a big part of that, a big part of what it made, what made it such a great movie. Right, right. And and so uh, I began to to I will get around to answering your question. Oh no, you're fine. Uh, fine, take your time, sir. I I began to um, to tweak and to change and to modify and to improve that method so that I could do it even better in an even briefer period of time. Um, and by the time we got to Band of Brothers, um, I recognized that I had the way to do this. And so Steven Spielberg and Tom Hanks called me in and they said, Dale, you know, we want you to do this. We want you to do what you normally do. But what do you need? And I said, I want, because these guys are seen from their very formation." Easy Company 506, first of the 506, 101st Airborne Division in World War II. They're given, we see them from the time they assemble, from the time they go into basic training, all the way toward the end of the war. And so I said, I need to replicate that experience in some fashion. And I said, I, I want two weeks, and I'll take them, by the time I graduate them, by the time I bring them out, they will know what it was like to be a young paratrooper soldier um, in World War II. And so I designed this program that began with a, uh, a long series of living in the barracks at, uh, and actually I used a barracks uh, because that's what they would have used um, at Tekoa right. uh, when they were originally formed, um, at a place called Longmore Camp which is very near Aldershot, which is the home of the British Army. And I was completely isolated. There was a fence around the area, completely isolated. Um, they had to, I had our own cooks, and we fed them, um, and we PT'd every morning. Uh, we honked hard all the time. We worked at night uh, so that they would get used to that. And what happened is they began to gel. They began to know each other. They began to become a paratrooper rifle company circa 1944. And that's what I wanted. So as we worked toward the end of that training period, I made arrangements with the uh, British Army's number one parachute school at Bryce Norton Royal Air Force Base. 
And I took them up and I put them through a complete ground parachute training regimen. And the, the culmination of it, I couldn't actually get them out the door of an aircraft because the insurance guys were going nuts. <laughs> um, but I got them off of a 60-foot tower. Um, and when I brought them back to Longmore, I conducted a graduation exercise, pinned wings on them, and said, now, we are going out to do one of the most important missions in your life, and that is to celebrate the lives and the accomplishments of the real men that you are portraying. And you will do it right, and you will do it with pride, and you will do it with the same panache and dash that they did in uh, June of 1944. And so it it worked magically, as I knew it would. Um, And I'll never forget uh, Steven Spielberg coming by with Tom Hanks in tow to take a look at them toward the end of training. And he just looked at me and he said, what have you done? <laughs> and, and I didn't I didn't know exactly what he meant. I mean, have, have I screwed this up? I didn't think I did. And he was he was just all smiles. And he said, they are them. And I said, yes, sir, they are them. And I'm going to be right at their shoulder, leading them all the way through this to see that they remain them until we get this thing made. So that's that's a, a long um a long story, but but that's essentially how I did it. No, that's great. And you know the thing that uh, that you see, and I know that with you, you had already you had already gone through this with with Tom Hanks in Saving Private Ryan, um, right? So he he had seen the benefit firsthand. Uh, much much like a guy who you know they see they see basic training on TV or or any of the different versions of it, and they're like, I don't sure. understand what's the necessity of being of being treated so poorly and being being yelled at and everything. And it's not until, and sometimes I think not until you become an NCO in the military, do you realize the importance of that type of training as far as building a team and bringing guys together. And like you said, you break them down to their, to their base survivalist instincts. And then you've got them them then to, to build them up from that point. And they build up together as a team. And that building as a team does really make them the same. And I, I think where you go, you get, you get it right. The most is, is that whole attitude of, they, these are those guys because anybody that goes through that and, and they go through that as a, as a group together, they always come out the other side. Uh, we sure. Talk- I mean, look, the, the, and I sorry to interrupt you, but no, go ahead. The, the idea is basically this. I recognize that, you know, you can train anybody to walk and act like a soldier, but the real magic is in understanding the heart and the mind of that soldier and how he reacts and why he reacts and and how how you relate to each other and how you how you rely on each other and so that was that was if there's any magic to it it was that i i wanted to get beyond the exterior i wanted to get into their head and into their guts where emotion lives um, into their hearts where spirit lives. Uh, and those are all, um, you know, warm and fuzzy, touchy feely words, but that's the real deal. Right. Right. And that's what, that's what makes a veteran. That's what makes a soldier of any ilk of any uniform, uh, different than anybody else in the world because they understand that. And I wanted, I wanted the guys in band of brothers to understand that. And they did. Yes, they, they certainly did. 
So going on when you, you have, all right, so in Saving Private Ryan is always a good example of this. You had one guy, you had Captain Miller, Tom Hanks. He was going to be the leader of that group of men. So in Band of Brothers, we have such a plethora and, and, and almost a overabundance of leaders in that group of guys from major winners, uh, First Sergeant Lipton, Captain Spears, uh, Buck Compton, all these guys. They, those were leaders in their different ways, but all leaders. Did you approach the set of dealing with these guys differently to get that leadership out of them any different than you had with with other groups of, of guys you were teaching where you only had one or two leaders that were going to arise out of that group of men you were training? As as training progressed, I did make some some uh, I did single them out. Uh, but to begin with, I wanted them to be they, part of the reason they were such good leaders, frankly, was because they understood their men. They understood what was going on with their guys. Right. And so as as we began training, uh, that's what I did. I said, first, you're going to learn to be a private. And then you can learn to be a corporal, maybe. And then, assuming you understand all of that, I will begin to focus on you as an officer or as a senior NCO. Right. And that's what I did. Uh, fortunately, I had I had my staff of Warriors Inc. guys. And so while they handled certain things, I was able to drift off among the officers, um, you know, with Damian Lewis and, and some of the others and say, come here. I want to tell you a few officer things, <laughs> things that I want you to understand uh, with Lipton, because I'd been a senior NCO. Right. Uh, I pulled him aside and I said, listen, here's the difference between NCO business and officer business. And I said, and you don't want to let them get in your business and you don't want to get in their business. And and I explained what that business was. So as as they began to get the basics, as they began to get the basic understanding of the structure and the mentality of a combat unit, I began to single them out. I began to pull them out and give them individual training and 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 kind of work in their characters because they'd all done terrific homework. Yeah, we it was fortunate that we, we were fortunate that some of the veterans were alive. Right. And and we were able they were able to talk to them, not during training. I didn't allow any of that. There was absolutely no outside communication whatsoever. Right. Nor is there ever in any of my training. No phones, no nothing. So it's I much it's much it. like it's much like the same type of um, isolation based uh, unit cohesion training that we ourselves have been through, whether it's basic training. Sure. Uh, boot sure. camp, ranger school, that kind of stuff. And sure. to me, that's, we, that's, we that's like what it reminds me of the most is, is like a small ranger school for these guys where they build yeah. up from being nobody to being the leader of these patrols. That's a good example. Yeah. So, so yeah. anyway, the, yeah, the, go ahead. the point, point I'm making, uh, quite frankly, is that um, I knew all of these things. Many. What I did was to... Um, was to massage them into their characters. Say things like, well, you know, uh, Winters probably isn't that kind of guy. He probably wouldn't react in that fashion. So when, when we got those, when we got to those character specific things, they were really hungry for it because they're actors and they really wanted to do a good job. They now had the basics. Uh, they understood much more, frankly, about what, the the live veterans had told them right than they than they did before now they saw it now they understood it 
And so it was easy then to take those individuals and massage them up into leadership positions. And as we began in the final days of the training, uh, we ran missions, uh, actual training missions in the field, uh, basic stuff, assault on a fortified position and, and that sort of thing. Um, and, and they led. Myself and my cadre stood back and we let them plan it, we let them lead it, and we let them do it. So they began to get that that feeling of what it's like to plan it and carry it out. It's fantastic. It really is. It's, it's, it's remarkable that uh, it, it's, such a, it's such a basic idea that I think is probably you probably think of the same thing I have. It's like, why did nobody figure this out earlier? You know? Well, they were afraid of Hollywood hubris. There were, there were two elements. You want me to talk about that for a please, little bit? Please go right ahead. I'd love to hear it. All right. When, when I first came to Hollywood and I said, look, I'm, I'm a creative guy. I'm a storyteller. I know how to do this. They said, well, that's impossible. You couldn't be. Nobody who wore a uniform who was in the military, they, you don't go in the military if you're a creative person, if you're right. a filmmaker. Right. You know, and, and that's what I faced. They actually believed that the establishment out here. So first of all, I had to prove that I was indeed that sort of creative person. Right. Uh, that, that was one thing. And the other thing was that they didn't think anybody in the audience cared. You know, so what? Nobody's going to know if that's the right weapon or not. Who cares? Just <laughs> it, it shoots, right? Get it out there. Right. And I said, guys, not only are you talking to a batch of, you know, a generation of Vietnam guys who do know. But you're talking to people who are who are tied into their their media saturated. They know these things. You can't make the presumption that nobody gives a crap. Right. They do. And the details are important. So, so it was those two battles that I had to defeat. But those two problems were the reason that nobody had done it before I did it, because everybody would look at that. And simply say, well, okay, I guess that's the way it is in Hollywood. Well, I said horseshit. Excuse my language. <laughs> no, no. I we're, said, we're an explicit show, sir. You're, you're well, well, well allowed. Just go ahead. I'm, I'm not buying that, and I don't quit. I'm not a quitter. Uh, I will take this objective. And so in spite of all of those roadblocks and in spite of all of those problems, I just kept at it. I fixed bayonets and went at it. Right. Um, and I got that one break. And that one break was an Academy Award winner, and nothing succeeds in Hollywood like success. Do, do you do you think? And this, this is a question on, on that one question. Do you think that that uh, Oliver Stone's experiences in the military and the fact that he was actually a soldier himself? Do you think that helped along with him giving you that opportunity, where he maybe kind of knew already what, that you were saying that you were saying the truth? Oh, he did. He did absolutely. He he. The minute I pitched it to him that this is what I wanted to do that. It, I wanted them to live in the jungle like we lived in the jungle. He got it immediately. Right. He said, yeah, that's, that's probably right. That's probably the only way they'll really understand this. Uh, and remember, in, in those days, these guys, the guys we had, uh, Charlie Sheen, Forrest Whitaker, um, Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe, Johnny Depp, um, they, weren't, they weren't major names at that point. Right. And so, uh, you know, he said, yeah, they're, they're going to need, they're going to need to understand who we were in order to understand this script and how to tell this story. So yeah, absolutely. He got it. And, and the reason he got it is because he had been through it.
Right. And, and having said that, uh, for the, for the people listening, it is, it is the same the other way around. Um, as you guys who have been listening to my show for a long time know, I went to a performing arts high school in New Jersey. Uh, I tried out for Juilliard. Uh, things didn't work out. I had to pay for college. I joined the army, went from the 82nd airborne division to second ranger battalion. And the number one thing I always ran into was you did what in high school? How could you, yeah, right. who wanted to be an actor and be a singer, <laughs> end up in one of the most elite units in the military? And it's, it was always a source of poking fun at me all the time. And it was okay for me. I understood that, that my heart and my soul were in the military, regardless of what, of what chosen profession I had wanted to do when I was younger. But it's, it's the same thing. It goes back. It's both, both cultures are just as guilty as of not understanding each other as one and the other is. Yeah. So and and frankly, they're they're unwilling sometimes to take that one step forward or back that it, it's all it takes to understand. But yeah, you're right. It's the obverse of what I was running into out here. I call it Hollywood hubris, but you could call it Ranger hubris. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So did you have any did you have any way that you had to approach everything differently? Because for Platoon and Saving Private Ryan, although the the events were were real, you know, they were based on real things that happened. It wasn't some made up war with some made up unit, but in band of brothers, you were actually dealing with real live historic figures. And so did that, did that affect or change the way you had to tell, teach these guys how to act? And I know you mentioned that you talked to them individually about, Hey, winners wouldn't act that way. Obviously mm-hmm. it worked with Lipton. Cause I think that he's my favorite character in the movie. And I yeah. think he nails it because I had met uh, uh, captain Lipton eventually, but I met him at one point. And I was as soon as I met him, I'm like, God, you remind me of Donnie Wahlberg in the show. Yeah. <laughs> like, so they, they, they got it right. But did you have to approach that differently because of that? Yeah, uh, of course. I mean, um, look, I, there were things in World War Two and the way things were done in World War Two uh, that, frankly, I knew there was a better way. Right. There was an easier way. But I couldn't take that way. Um, because it would have been a lie and it would have, it would have cheated these guys, uh, of a valuable experience. So I had to, I had to back up, uh, and I, I really had to, in fact, I spent a long time in, in old army field manuals, um, trying to, trying to get how it was taught in those days. Right. And, and it was taught to the lowest common denominator. Uh, because a lot of those guys didn't have high school educations and, 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 and they just weren't, they weren't susceptible to the quick and dirty way we can train now. Mm-hmm. So it w- there was a lot of step-by-step ABC, uh, one, two, three sort of, sort of training. And I had to do it. And, you know, sometimes I would stand there and grip my teeth and say, geez, I could do this in an hour and a half if I, you know, if I do, <laughs> but but we couldn't do that, and, and I didn't want to do that. Um, you know, when we went up to Bryce Norton uh, to do the ground uh, parachute training, uh, all of the, the British parachutists up there said, oh, well, here, you know, we just do this. I said, no, guys, I can't do that because it wasn't the way it was done in the 1940s. Right. So we've got to go through this step. By, and they finally just shrugged their shoulders and said, oh, well, what the hell, and walked away. Um, but I got them through the swing landers and, and all that other sort of thing in the same way that it was taught, you know, down at the frying pan at, uh, at, at Fort Benning and back in the 1940s. But yes, I had to, I had to modify the approach so that I didn't inject something modern 
uh, although I, I desperately wanted to several times. Well, I'm sure you did, yeah. <laughs> so do, do you, uh, now, for those of the people that are going to be following this for the first time, Dale Dye didn't just be the technical advisor on Band of Brothers. You also played a very important part of the story itself by playing Colonel Sink, who was the commander for the 506 throughout the entirety of World War II. Um, my, my favorite role. It, it, and as well it should be because it, it's done magnificently, if I, if I may say so myself. Right. I mean, it's, it's very it's, – it, guys, for those of you who don't know things about it, and I know that sometimes you guys hear me go off on this tangent about acting and character building and everything, but I'm a storyteller myself much like Dale is, and, and, I, and I, it, I take a lot out of that. But sometimes those small roles when they're really – they're pivotal. And you can tell every time that, may, that Colonel Sink's character is on screen that something important is about to happen because he's, he is there as the character who is – this is important. Pay attention. Just, just like a colonel would be in real life. Whenever you know, mm -hmm. the privates see the colonel around, uh-oh, something's going down. We, we need to pay attention. Uh, did you have any kind of specific approach to uh, playing Colonel Sink? And did you allow yourself to be able to portray that as, as a leader to those actors – being a leader on sure. and off screen, even just so you can maintain that 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 ability to be that character. Well, you'd you'd be hard pressed to find a better leader uh, than than uh, Bourbon Bob Sink, um, and and I you know I was tremendously into the character, and I tried to incorporate some of his activities and and that sort of thing in the early training phase. But I was very lucky. I mean, I knew I was portraying somebody who is um, an airborne legend. I mean, there are portraits of him down at Fort Bragg, and I've, I've seen them. Yes, I, so, I, I live at Fort Bragg, so I see them all the time. Love that guy. Right. So, so I knew that, that I had to get this right, and I was really fortunate. Um, his daughter, uh, Barbara McClellan Sink, uh, Barbara Sink McClellan, um, was very good to me. Uh, she sent me tapes of his speeches that he'd made so I could get that North Carolina accent correct. <laughs> And, and I listened to him for hours until I could absolutely mimic the way he spoke. Um, and, I, and it also helps to be from the South myself. But um, it, it, was, it, was a, it was both a, a privilege uh, to bring him to life on screen, and it was a bit of a burden uh, because I, I really knew that I had to get this right. Everybody who knew anything about the Army Airborne knew about Bob Sink. And, uh, and, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't bring some cookie cutter caricature. I had to bring who this guy really was. The, the good part was that I've been a leader almost all of my military life. And so, um, I, I understood him. I understood why he did things the way he did. Uh, I could see his philosophies. Uh, I could see his psychology. I could see how he were. I knew what type of leader he was. And I was familiar with all of that. So it was easier on me than it would have been for somebody who'd never been a leader in the military. Right. Um, <clears throat> but but it was, a, it was um, I felt that mantle every day that I can't get this wrong. Oh, yeah, when, and I don't think you did, sir. To be honest with you, I think you, got it, you nailed it on the head. I mean, I look at him and I think that guys like him and James Gavin and all these men who are the, mm -hmm. the, the actual, the men who made the Airborne what they are. Um, yep. So important, Absolutely. and every time those guys can get get portrayed on screen, uh, they deserve that kind of uh, attention and that kind yeah, of and perfection. You, and you you talk about a, a new burden. 
uh, in my new movie, I'm, I'm raising uh, the funding now for a new World War II movie called No Better Place to Die, which is the 82nd <laughs> uh, on D-Day at the Lafayette Bridge fight. And in that are none other than Jumpin' Jim Gavin and uh, Matthew Ridgway. Oh, man. That's so, great. yeah, you, you talk about legends, and I'm going to bring them to life on screen. So I've, I've got another challenge ahead of me. Oh, that's, I'm looking forward to that. That's great. Being a, being a, a, I grew up in the 82nd. It was my, my first unit in the Army. Uh, right. And I, and I live it. You know, to this point, you know, when I finally got retired from the military, we didn't move from Fort Bragg area. Because this, this is my life and all. And all I, I'm, I'm like you. I live this even though I'm no longer active. Sure. You know, so it's, it's, that's, that's great. I can't wait to see that because it's really. Well, uh, listen, I, I, I had to do something for the 82nd. I mean, these guys were killing me. <laughs> um, you know, they were caught. Look what you did for the 101st and Band of Brothers. And, you know, look what you did for, for the Rangers and Saving Private Ryan. When's the 82nd? Goodness. So finally I said, guys, okay. I'm on it. Um, and, and I'm going to try to do for them what, what we did for the 101st in, uh, in Band of Brothers. So let's, I want to go down a little bit of the road. You were talking about Colonel Sink and getting that right and how you understood what he needed, what his leadership style, because you used to be a leader. Now, I have a lot of arguments with guys who are either people who are just privates or people who don't know anything about the military. They always go after Sobel's character. Now, yeah. now, for me specifically, yes. Do I did I do I identify more with Winters and 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 Carlton Lipton? Yeah, I do. But I also see the benefit of what Sobel did to build that that unit into what I mean. I think so much of their initial cohesion had to do with that that common denominator of of uh, Captain Sobel. Uh, well, you're not you're not the you're not the only one who thinks that, Jeff. Um, the 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 surviving veterans that we talked to all said uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't have gotten through to where they were without Sobel. They didn't like him. They hated him, but they recognized immediately that he's the guy that built Easy Company. Right. Well, that, and, that's that's uh, good to hear because that's something I, I think every time I watch, I watch David Trimmer play him, I'm like, they, they have no idea the people who haven't lived through stuff like this, how, how important he was. To David, David Schwimmer impressed me. Um, he was injured during training. Uh, and I thought, um, you know, it was a knee that blew out and I thought, well, he's through, uh, I had to send him for medical treatment. And I said, well, he'll, he'll never make it back to jump with us. Um, and about three days later, lo and behold, he showed up, he showed up on the day we were going to jump school and he said, I'm not missing this. And, you know, I thought originally he was, might be a bit of a lightweight, but he wasn't right. Um, he wanted to do this. And when I talked to him about Schwimmer, I'm, I'm sorry about uh, Sobel. Um, you know, he got it. He knew that he was a pariah. Right. And that and that everybody was going to hate him. And I said, how are you going to handle that? And he said, well, I'm going to I'm going to handle it the way I think Sobel did. And that is keep pushing forward and, and keep doing what I think is correct, no matter who likes it or doesn't like it. And I said, OK, you got it, uh, because that's what Sobel did. Um, and he's a tragic story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, know, he, you feel bad for him when you're watching as a as a former leader. That moment where he gets the company taken away from him is is to me is one of the most heartbreaking parts of the first two episodes. Yeah, it was one of, one of the most interesting scenes I did was having to fire him uh, in my office in in that. Um, but I tried to let him down as as easy as I could. The interesting thing was, you know, I knew 
and David knew, David Schwimmer knew, that Sobel had later killed himself. You know, he right. committed suicide. And, uh, and we, we could just imagine the heartbreak. And I could see David in the scene playing it. You know, he had that in the back of his mind that this is the pivotal incident in the man's life and that eventually it's going to lead to his death. Um, and he I just thought he played it to a T. He, he really did. You didn't see any of the friends uh, sort of stuff in there. No, he, he sure, played sure Sobel. Yeah, he, he really he really took a step out. I think as an actor, that was really one of his uh, really one of his best roles he's ever, yeah. he's ever to done. this day. He's, he's still very proud of it. And he should be. Yes, he should be. So. Let's talk about Easy Company and the history of it. What What is your favorite storyline and favorite event from from the Easy Company legacy? Well, it's it's hard to say. I mean, they did so many uh, great things as as part of um, you know the overall eighty second uh, drive. Um, what I particularly like. Um, the the initial mission uh, that they got uh, taking out the artillery battery. Mm. Um, that was difficult to choreograph, uh, because it was all done with handheld cameras. Um, and it was really, um, a, a difficult thing to do. Um, and they, they approached it. We, we tried to shoot it. That's at Braycourt Manor. Um, we, we tried to shoot it in the way that it actually happened. Right. And, and we got so close to it that, um, that I, I said, you know, I knew at that moment that we really had a tiger by the tail here in, in this storytelling. Because so often you have to shoot things out of order mm-hmm. or you, 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 you lose the, the, the thread of the tale that you're telling because, you know, the camera gets in the way and all that sort of thing. But in the Brecourt Manor um, German artillery battery assault, which happened very, very shortly after they landed. Right. It was the next morning, um, wasn't it? Yeah, it was the next morning. Um, that that I just, I could, I could see and I knew inherently that that was the proof, that was the proof of the pudding for Easy Company. When, when they pulled that off, um, they knew that they were a special outfit. Right. That's, that's, was, that is the mission that, that is still taught at West Point to this day as, as the now the doctrinal way to take down a fortified position. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. Well, it depends on the fortified position. It's certainly, certainly a doctrinal way to take down a damn artillery battery. I'll, I'll say that. Right. Um, and and it, was, it was really, really hard. Uh, because that battery had been there for a long time. Uh, they had all kinds of defensive positions and trenches dug. And, and you know, easy company guys had to get in there and just winkle them out uh, by running up and down those trenches and then taking each individual uh, tube as they went on down the battery line, battery firing line. So that, that, that always, that made me smile the way it must have made Dick Winter's smile when it was done back in 1944. That'll always stand out as as kind of one of my favorite uh, pieces. Yeah, so, such an important uh, aspect of the, of the Easy Company story. And I and I, if I'm correct, and I will do my my background to double check this before I if and I'll edit it out if I'm wrong. But I believe that is the single most award winning mission they had done because I know Dick Winters had won the Distinguished Service Cross, second highest award uh, combat award you can get, and Buck Compton and and Garnier both won silver stars for that. 
And guys, you know, you know, when I when it comes to Jeff Adamick, I'm going to talk about Silver Stars as being the first guy in third group to get one. But these guys actually did it and earned it. It wasn't just thrown at them like it was at me. Hey, here you go. Congratulations for surviving the invasion of Iraq. But these guys actually went out and did something inspirational that, that actually led on to such a such a big a big deal to have something in combat that actually they, they came up with the mission plan that morning. Dick Winters did. They executed it, and if you watch it, you can see so many things that are in there, like Buck Compton showing his baseball abilities by throwing the grenade that didn't arc, as, as the story goes, right at right at the German the German uh, the German soldiers. Uh, Bill Garnier leading leading the way down those things, even up to to Lieutenant Spears doing the the uh, the very famous you know crazy run into that last position. So I, I, I yeah, agree. With you. It's, it's one of my favorite parts of the show too. And and you know. Uh, you aren't the only guy that that recognized that. I mean, I think from what I've read uh, in uh, in Bob Sink's uh, Colonel Bob Sink's General Bob Sink later, um, and from what I've read in his personal papers, he recognized it, and he knew that was exceptional, and he wanted to make uh, an issue of it. He wanted to give those people what they deserved because he knew uh, nobody else knew, but I think he did. Uh, that they weren't going to be pulled out and sent back to England to refit um, after the Normandy uh, breakout. He knew they were going to continue. Right. And and I think he said, well, you know, I think I better show them right quick uh, that performance like that gets recognized. If, if you don't mind, I'd like to uh, jump forward a little bit in the storyline. Another episode that your character <clears throat> par- uh, participates in is in the episode Why We Fight. Um, mm. you know, we see Ron Livingston's character start to start to debate why he's there. You know, his wife has left him. He's really starting to drink the bat 69 a little bit too much to where, where mm. you Colonel Sink demote him, uh, through, through, uh, major winners at the time. But the scene where you, where you move in and you have to, you have to tell the men of easy company that they have to put the, the, uh, concentration camp prisoners back inside. Um, the character, and, and I don't remember the, the actor's name at the time, but he's the one who plays Liebgold. Uh, the one that's mm-hmm. interpreted. Liebgott. Yeah. The, the Jewish. Ross uh, McCall. His, his, I tell you what, if, if there were Oscars, I mean, I know there were Emmys given, but if there were Oscars for TV performances, um, his job in that one episode, um, in my opinion, is one of the most fascinating because it's such a real emotional event. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, about the filming of that scene and, and, and your, your thoughts about how difficult it must sure. be for those guys at that moment to know that they've got to I put mean, these people back? Yeah, uh, uh, Ross McCall is one of my favorite actors. He's he's a British guy and and a very close friend of mine these days. Um, but he he knew what was coming in that, and we had gone out of our way. I mean, we had we went and looked for people who were uh, just rail thin with ribs showing, and and some of whom I think were very sick, uh, but they wanted to be part of this. Um, and so we hired him and brought him in to play prisoners in, in the camp. Uh, and that really helped. Um, and we had built the ovens and, and that sort of thing. And, and, uh, what I did was before we got ready to shoot this, I, I took the guys that were going to be involved, uh, Liebgott, Ross McCall, uh, and some of the others. And, and we sort of walked through it and I said, gents, I want you to think about this. Think about how shocking this is just to see it now. Think about then when these people were seeing what the true black heart of Nazism was. Right. Um, 
And I want you to think about that, and I want you to chew on that before we get started here. And uh, and they did. Um, you know, I think I think it's one thing to read about it and to gasp at you know three million uh, killed in these concentration camps, and and it's another thing to see it on the ground and to let your imagination go and say, oh my God, think about what this must have happened. What what must have happened to these guys? And then I knew um, that the the human um, the human nature is, well, let's, let's bring them out of there. Let's get them out of those cages and let's feed them and let's give them water and let's give them those things they need. Um, <clears throat> because that's human nature. I mean, that's what you want to do. You don't want to see anybody suffering like that. Right. Um, and, and then I had to come in and say, gents, hold it. I know what you want to do. I, I know what you feel like you need to do, but if we do that, we'll kill these people. Right. And and it was a tough thing for me to do because oh, yeah. I, I can imagine what must have happened on the day in reality when they hit that camp. And everybody had, had seen the horrors of war, and now they were seeing an even more horrible aspect of war and or that particular war. And, and they... they they wanted to help. They wanted to do something. They were desperate to do something. And here's their CO coming in and saying, I'm sorry, we can't. We right. must not. Yeah, and that's, that's and tough. Without, without a lot of time to explain it. Um, so it, we got some great reactions from those guys when I came on and told them, no, you, you can't do this. Uh, you know, you could see some expressions. And, and believe me, Spielberg didn't miss that. Right. You know, he got the expressions on there. There was anger. There was disappointment. There was there was sadness. Um, and you saw it all. Right. Uh, and I think it, I think it gave even even as weighty and, and with as much um, emotional impact as that whole episode had. Uh, I think the business of having to put them back in uh, for their own good. Uh, gave it extra gravitas, not only for the, the audience, but for us who are having to do it, who are having to depict it. Right, and that, that's why I asked. You could see guys like Leave Got Character actually looks like he's breaking down for real. Uh, the look yeah. of actual shock on on Christensen, who was played by Michael Fassbender, his face yeah. standing there when you're when you're telling them they've got to put the guys back. It's that's pure. That's real. Um, yeah, it is. And we yeah. we know as combat veterans that, and it's an old adage, and people say it might even be you know just crap but it's not we really do understand the horrors of war probably more so than than anybody that that could watch it on television and well to be that's able not to, probably that's exactly that's well, precisely correct yeah I, I, I just i didn't want to throw anyone under the bus i'll let you do that but, <laughs> okay <laughs> but no it's a uh, we understand it so much deeper and to be able to see that on screen and that those are the moments like that and the moments like in the ardennes forest when when carlton lipton is talking about toy and Garnier and Compton mm -hmm. walks up and has that moment. There's not a person that's ever been in a combat situation for an extended period of time. Who's lost buddies who doesn't identify with Buck Compton's character yeah. when, when he's having his breakdown and he's, he's in the, he's in the hospital and he's reached that breaking point. And when, when, when Scott Grimes character malarkey comes in and wants to redo him to try to cheer him up and him reaching over and grabbing that paper. And he's like, stop uh, back before combat ex experiences, I understood it. It never broke me down to actual tears until after 
I had had my own struggles with PTSD after the point. Um, can you talk a little bit as we're wrapping up here about PTSD and how you were able to really get those guys to understand and show it so accurately that the, the effects of long-term exposure to combat on such on these American guys who were, who really are just heroes just for tolerating it and, and, and having to handle that struggle and still move on and do their jobs. Well, look, um, I did that a lot with storytelling. I let them see into my own heart. Uh, look, I struggled with it um, for 10 years um, after my wartime experiences. Um, but listen, uh, PTSD, first of all, uh, nobody knew what the hell that was. Right. And, and frankly, there's way too much of it now. Uh, there's, it, it's become too easy a thing. I understand. Yeah, uh, I agree with you also. You've, you've got to learn to deal with yourself. Nobody's going to come out there right. and, and pat you on the ass and tell you what a wonderful person you are <laughs> beside, beside all the devils that are crawling around in your head and your heart. Um, you've, you've got to be strong to deal with that and you must deal with it yourself. You can't lay that off on some doctor or some shrink or somebody else. You've got to do it. Uh, and it's part of your duty. It's part of your mission as a soldier. Um, and you must look at it that way. Uh, and that's, that's the kind of thing I told them about. Um, I told them about, you know, being so sick with it at one point when I was stationed in Washington after the war that I actually drove my motorcycle into the wall of Arlington National Cemetery. Um, you know, how, how, <laughs> how blatant is that? How over right. the top is that? Um, right. It's, it's that kind of thing. And, and I just had to grip it. I had to grip it and grin. I had to get on with it. And that's what those guys did, because if I didn't have any help, they sure as hell didn't have any back then. Right. Um, they were tough individuals. They were. And, and that's what I told the guys. I said, look, it's going to hit you. It's going to hurt you. Um, and, and you're going to have to deal with it. I mean, I will, I will never forget the moment that I knew Buck Compton um, really understood it. Um, and that's the moment that he takes his helmet off and he just drops it. Yeah. And I said, <laughs> yeah, and that was Neil McDonough. And Neil got it. He understood. I said, you have just said about nine million words in one little action right there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, great, great scene. And the, the lead up and the way it was filmed is, is was perfect, in my opinion, because uh, it yeah. really did. It really did surmise everything that goes on that, you know, you know, we are a glass that it, and that is you could filling you up could with water. See, you can only hold so much. You could see the demons crawling around behind Buck's eyes. Right, right when he dropped that helmet and, and I said, yep, that's it. He's got it. Uh, and, and you know, that's a thing I'm, I'm glad that we included it. Uh, frankly, uh, we didn't, it wasn't intentional to, 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 uh, to emphasize PTSD. It was just the effect that that much death, especially people that you're close to around you, uh, can have on you. And, and we wanted to show it, but we didn't want to, you know, have a, have a little guy ride by on a unicycle with a, 
with a sign that said PTSD <laughs> on it. I mean, you know, right. so we, we had to do it in, in the way that, that guys would have done it in those days, would have dealt with it in those days. And I think we did that. No, I, I, you did. You did. Very well done. So as we wrap up, I, I have one more question. So you talk about those guys back there being tough. Um, what is the difference, if there is one, uh, the generation of men and women of the World War II era than any before or since? We always hear the greatest generation. Mm. And do you, do you, knowing and met those guys and working on shows like like Band of Brothers, like The Pacific, which to me is just as, as, as great as Band of Brothers, do you, do you find anything different in those generations that makes those people stand out from other generations that you, that you yeah, America, America is different. Society is different, right? It's, it's easier to live now. Um, you, there, there is a safety net in our society that didn't exist when those were, when those guys were young men growing up, it was hard scrabble, right? And they had to do what was necessary just to feed themselves. Um, growing up through the depression and, and that sort of thing. Uh, they understood hard times. And I think we're much more capable of dealing with hard times. They were able to get out of themselves. They, were, they, they had learned through their experiences before the military to be selfless, to be tough, to be resourceful. And we're missing that today. So I think there is a difference. Well said. Well said, sir. So as, as we close up here, I just wanted to uh, remind everyone that, that Captain Dale Dye is, is not just a guy who used to do things. He's still working uh, towards <laughs> – well, I just, a lot of times everyone's always talking about, oh, what did he used to do? But as you said, you're working on a new film now. Um, do you want to talk a little – I know you already mentioned it's about, it's about the 82nd, but do you have any other, any other things or anywhere anyone can go to learn or – Yeah, sure. You can, you can look it up anywhere on the internet. Um... But I think one of the interesting aspects of it is I have I have thought for a long time, Jeff, that that America's veterans, especially veterans who want to get into show business in whatever aspect, writer, director, uh, producer, um, actor um, or, or working in one of the technologies behind the scenes. These guys aren't given enough credit. These guys and gals, by the way, um, aren't aren't given enough opportunity Hollywood still ignores them. You know, they, they play a good game, but when it comes down to it, um, they don't get the shot they want. So I've, I've decided with our new film, uh, No Better Place to Die, I've decided to use as many genuine veterans in front of the camera as actors and behind the cameras as technicians as I can find, as many as I can find qualified. Now, granted, the top three roles in, in the film are going to have to be A-list actors, and I get that. Right. Or I, or I won't get funded. Um, but, but I'm going to try to populate the, the B-rolls, um, the, the secondary uh, roles in the, in the film, and as much of the filmmaking cadre as I can using genuine veterans, really guys who understand this, guys and gals who understand this, um, so that... The, the film will have that special nature of insight. And those guys and gals, those veteran guys and gals will bring the kind of work ethic and the kind of selfless devotion to a mission uh, to the film that they brought to their, to their missions um, while they were in uniform. So I think that's a little special aspect of what I'm doing.
That, that's awesome. And, uh, and I think you're right on with this. so many guys that want to get into the, uh, the entertainment industry. Are, are I get getting... hundreds, hundreds of emails and phone calls a week. I'm sure you do. <laughs> I'm sure you do. I'm sure when you first got the email from me, the first thing you thought was, okay, what does this guy, what does this guy want? But, um, warriorsinc.com is that that is still act your your company's website yeah, absolutely uh, it's up and running uh there's also and there's the dog there's a doggy in the background so yeah, i've got a i've got a, a golden pyrenees that's a hundred pound lap dog he's huge <laughs> i got a i had a, a dutch shepherd in my last my last unit assignment in, in uh special forces was as a dog handler so i had, yeah. a, I had a 110 pound dutch shepherd who was the same thing he was a a hard-nosed dog found bombs, you know, bit the enemy and everything like that, but he'd crawl up in your lap and be a lap dog for you. Yeah, seconds. exactly. That's, that's what I've got. You get it. Okay. Yep. Uh, duty and dishonor, which is the, uh, you have the author's preferred edition, which is now available. Yeah. That's uh, one of, one of, uh, my 12 novels, uh, that are out. I'm also a writer, uh, novelist, um, duty and dishonor is the newest book. That's the author's preferred edition. I think people really love that one. And the shake Davis file series, um, which if, if you like, uh, Jack Reacher and Lee Childs and that sort of thing, it's, it's along that, uh, that line. Um, so that starts with Laos file and goes on down into the most recent one, which I think is, uh, uh, Havana file. And, th and those so, are available on warriorsinc.com. Oh yeah. They're, they're available on Amazon warriors. Inc. All you got to do is go to Dale die books and, and they'll all be there. Fantastic. Well, Mr. Dale die. I want to thank you, sir, for taking time out of your schedule to come on with us. Jeff, you're most welcome. It was a delightful conversation. Always great to talk to another veteran. Lessons in Leadership, Band of Brothers, is a production of Changing Hearts and Minds, hosted by Jeff Adamick on the Change Your POV Podcast Network. You can find other amazing shows on the network by going over to changeyourpov.com. Huge thanks goes out to all the amazing guests featured in the episodes of this series. First, our very own network hosts, Eddie Lazary and Bennett Tanton, hosts of Change Your POV Podcast and Attack Friday. Dwayne France, host of Headspace and Timing, Andrew McDowell, host of Neophyte in the Woods, and our newest host, Benjamin Loth, hosting a show releasing soon called Branding with Benjamin. Special thanks goes out to some amazing podcast hosts who have donated their time and opinions to the series. Sam Culper of Breakers Podcast, Brad Taylor of Sofa Kings Podcast, Nick Giglio of Conspiracy Geeks Podcast, and last but certainly not least, to the man who probably had the biggest role in making Band of Brothers the series that it is today, a staple amongst military ranks and revered by all who have worn the uniform. Here's a huge salute to you, Captain Dale Dye. Owner of Warriors, Inc., Dale also has a new film in the making and is planning on using veterans to be part of the cast and crew. To learn more about this and to get the links to all of the podcasts and podcast hosts mentioned, Head on over to changeyourpov.com forward slash band of brothers, all one word. If you like this series, share it with someone you think would like it too. Thanks for listening. And in the words of Dick Winters, I thank God. 
for seeing me through the day of days and prayed I would make it through D plus one. I also promised that if some way I could get home again, I would find a nice, peaceful town and spend the rest of my life in peace.